Hey guys, welcome back to Joko Yo, and uh, I'm so glad that we're stu- still doing this thing, and you're still listening, and um, I, I so love this because it's, I feel like this is one of those things that where people may not know so much about the place and the people around them. It's, you know, you can go on the internet and find all kinds of stuff about other places, but... But there are very few places to go and, and listen or read or learn about, you know, your actual community. And this episode really, really uh, highlights that that need more than others. And, and this is there's a lot of stuff, so we'll have to get right into it and just jump right in. So if you're ready, I am. So... John Rufus Coates was no fan of secession. He believed, like many Southerners in 1860, that such an action was foolish, and it was absolutely unbelievable that North Carolina was even considering such a move. He, like many, understood that the nation was incredibly polarized, no doubt, in 1860, but it had been before, and we worked it out. We could, and and, and we should, you know, work it out again. It was the only logical and responsible move. Now, most Southerners were not fans of those fire-breathing secessionists like Edward Ruffin of South Carolina. Some North Carolinians even accused Mr. Ruffin of treason for, for calling for secession so much and called for his hanging for inflaming passions to a breaking point. So Mr. Coates Therefore, along with lots of other Southerners, watched with disapproval when the North Carolina General Assembly and Governor John Ellis gave in to the passions and joined South Carolina in this so-called confederacy. Mr. Coates perhaps saw the potentials of what such a war of, quote, independence, end quote, could bring for the state. After all, it was between two of the richest and most vocal of the seceding states, of Virginia and South Carolina, and so North Carolina was destined, destined to be a battleground. He wanted to keep this conflict as far away from his home as possible, and so to him, the best possible course was to join a cause he didn't believe in so that he could protect the people that he could, or that he did believe in. He was going to do his duty to his people. Now, he was no stranger to doing his duty. I mean, that sort of goes along with the character of the guy. His father, William Coates, had been a Johnston County tax collector and a veteran of the War of 1812. His grandfather, John Coates, received a grant in Johnston County for 400 acres for his service in the Revolutionary War in the North Carolina militia. John Rufus himself, grandson of John Coates by 1860, had accumulated years of experience in local government, including in the county court. And so when he decided to protect his home and its people, the role he took was to keep the war away. He was a member of the Home Guard. He rounded up deserters, and he sent them back away from Johnson, and he decided to make sure he brought food and supplies to the families whose husbands and fathers were away fighting. When the war was over and Reconstruction followed, the people knew and appreciated Mr. Coates for his service to his community, and the new Reconstruction governor, William Woods Holden, was looking to rebuild. And he took notice of this, 
Everyone in Johnston talked about Mr. Coates and his opposition to secession and also his service to his community. His name was known. So Governor Holden was looking to appoint about 3,000 people just after the American Civil War statewide to take over areas of the state, reestablish order, and get it functioning again. John Rufus Coates was the obvious pick for Johnston County, and he went to work immediately. At different times, and for some of these at the same time, he was Johnston County's Justice of the Peace, main tax assessor, postmaster, member representing Johnston County in the North Carolina House of Representatives. He established our current Board of Commissioners set up and sat on its board as his first chair. He also helped set up Johnston County's first Board of Education for Common Schools and was superintendent of it. Wow, he did everything. And he had one of the first schools in Pleasant Grove Township built on his own land, and he nearly single-handedly ran Johnston County. But he set it up so it could run itself. One of John Roofs's core beliefs was that in order for this to work and the people to begin to govern themselves, they had to have a decent education and pass down knowledge so that Johnston's people could act deliberately and logically instead of through illogical and momentary passion. It was that illogical and momentary passion that caused the American Civil War that Mr. Coates so despised. He tried to instill that need for a solid education to his ten children. That he was trying to prepare them for life. And on his farm, on his 3,000-acre farm that sat at the current-day crossroads of Raleigh Road and NC-210, which is now called Coates Crossroads, he preached education and hard work and duty to his community. His son Daniel was a firm believer and, and what his father was trying to teach him, and inherited the, the part of the farm at Coates Crossroads upon the death of John Rufus. He personally wanted to just run the farm. He didn't really want to get involved in the government like his father did. He didn't really grow to fill his father's roles. Instead, he engaged in digging a pond, running a steam engine to power a sawmill, two cotton gins, a grist mill, and serve his community in a different way. He, like like others, uh, raised a variety of crops, including tobacco. Daniel may not be so much for his own education that he wasn't really much for that reading and writing and stuff, but he was determined that his nine children would have good ones. It seems that Daniel also had a cousin who also believed in the value of an education. His cousin, uh, many of them he had, but one of them in particular was named Ira Turlington. Now, Ira Turlington believed in the value of education so much that he started a boarding school in Smithfield that became known statewide quickly for its excellent curriculum and later for also admitting women, which was, like, unheard of. A spat with a neighbor was just enough extra motivation for Daniel to move his family close to Ira's school in Smithfield so that his kids could attend. He needed a big house, obviously, with a farm, and he found one two miles from Iris' school. This this house, which what used to be Agrippa Michener's house, it was huge, and because of its size and its location, had been headquarters for three different Civil War generals on both sides. This house was also attractive to James Pugh, the lawyer, 
who bought it but soon found out that he was no farmer, so he sold it to Daniel Coates. Now, Daniel Coates' fifth child was thrilled at the prospect because it meant that, at least he thought, his labor would cease. At five, he had been a water carrier for the farm, cotton chopper at ten, and a plowman at twelve. His father also expected perfection at each job and reminded him with green cotton sticks. This fifth child, Albert, soon found that now he had school on top of his farm labors, as opposed to instead. But he came to understand through Daniel's help that education was his ticket away from the farm if he wanted to take it. So, Albert enthusiastically walked two miles to and from school every day, enrolling in Ira Turlington's Institute in 1902, reaching for that perfection that his cousin and headmaster Ira Turlington shared with his father. Turlington's Institute was perfect. It provided super or produced superstars. At the school at the same time as Albert were the only Rhodes Scholars to Oxford University that Johnston County has ever produced. Upon graduating, they enrolled at UNC Chapel Hill. So did Albert, graduating from UNC Chapel Hill in 1918 with the realization and understanding of the same thing that his grandfather, John Rufus, had spoken about, the need for logical and deliberate public service. Albert enrolled at Harvard Law, partly on scholarship, where he said the professors wrote the books that others had to teach. And so, from this experience, Albert began to see that with every general election, the continuity of government experience was broken. Government, Albert saw, the thing that keeps things running, is constantly in the hands of beginners who are elected because of passion, who do not always have beginner's luck. Elected officials were untutored amateurs. It was fine for government to change politics or change parties, but party changeover, he believed, should not reset the entire system every two to four years. He wasn't concerned with philosophy. He was concerned with practice. I hear echoes of John Rufus. The country had plenty of philosophy, but very precious little of the latter. Albert said the people know the words, but not the tune. You could almost imagine Albert hearing his grandfather's voice telling him to do his duty. So, Albert came back to UNC to teach along with his wife Gladys and spent every spare minute visiting court proceedings and, 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 and visiting police stations and fire stations and town halls and tax offices to learn their roles. He invited representatives from these institutions to guest lecture his law classes along with FBI agents, coroners, and later invited 300 of them to a weekend streamlining session. Albert Coates wanted to take the passion, the hot passion that caused the American Civil War, back out of American politics. And the way to do that was to learn the tune. Out of that weekend session with people from all walks of government, came something called the Albert Coates Institute of Government. Mr. Coates got a grant, formed this school at UNC, not designed for university students, but for government professionals and newly elected officials. 
to teach them what to do. It was a hit. It was praised by Franklin Roosevelt. It spawned copycats nationwide, and by 1970, 85% of all public officials in North Carolina had been students learning how to run a government and how to do the job that they campaigned for. Senator Sam Irvin of Watergate fame, North Carolina's first female Supreme Court Chief Justice Susie Sharp, William Friday of the UNC system, Governors Luther Hodges, Terry Sanford, Jim Hunt, Roy Cooper, Jim Martin, and Pat McCroy are all known to have attended and is still operational, serving the same population today and has expanded over the years to include degree options. Albert Coates of Johnston County effectively changed North Carolina politics. He wanted to teach North Carolina that it's not just about speeches. That's the last part. It's about doing your job. You want the job? Now do it. And if you don't know how to do it, we'll teach you. Since his death has expanded to be influential nationwide, Albert Coates said, Ignorance is sin, especially when the means to allay that ignorance is in front of you. Word up. He also said, There's never much value in keeping one's gaze fixed on what has been, or what could be, or what is somewhere else when it comes at the expense of what is right here and what is right now. John Rufus couldn't have said it better himself. Doing your duty, providing a service, taking care of your community. That's them. Y'all, it's been fun. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this one. Um, Albert Coates, John Rufus Coates, man, man, I dig those cats. And uh, I know it's fast-paced. It's a lot. You may want to hear, listen to it again because there's, I mean, there are several references to so many other previous podcasts. In fact, there's even a reference to the Turlington Institute that I mentioned that Mr. Albert Coates attended is going to be the focus of the next podcast because... Y'all, there's some bad junk, some some pretty bad junk that went down um, as it relates to the Turlington Institute. And we're even going to throw in one of the 20th century's foremost writers. Later, guys. 